Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Stephen Trimble's new book, The Mike File, is a memoir. Psychosis overwhelmed Trimble's brother Mike at age 14. Trimble's parents had no choice but to commit Mike to the Colorado State Hospital. Mike left when Steve was six, and he never lived at home again. In his new book, Trimble takes readers along on Mike's heartbreaking journey, noting that Mike's life parallels the history of our treatment of the mentally ill over the past 70 years. Stephen Trimble and Douglas Goldsmith, a longtime executive director of the Children's Center at Salt Lake City, are joining us uh, today, and they'll be in conversation uh, in a free virtual event on Crowdcast presented by the King's English Bookshop. That event is Wednesday, beginning at 6 p.m. You need to register for that free event. You can go to the King's English Bookshop website for that, and uh, that link will be on our uh, site a little later today as well. So we welcome in uh, Stephen Trimble. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for having us. Appreciate you uh, joining us to tell this story. Um, and Douglas Goldsmith, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the the Children's Center. Heavily involved with that. I think retired from there in 2018, now in private practice. But uh, um, uh, maybe tell me just briefly about the Children's Center. The Children's Center is a private nonprofit agency still serving um, over about 2,000 families in the community where young children are struggling with mental health needs of siblings and parents in our community. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us here. And, of course, we'll, uh, we'll be referring to your expertise as we go along here. Stephen Trimble, you, uh, at the beginning of this book, um, you said, it's in written in, in uh, present tense, you say, I hide from Mike's story for a long time. Why, why, did, you, why did you hide from the, the story? You know, Tom, I think the very best thing I could do is just read a couple of pages at the beginning of the book that take you back to that moment when I had a brother. I had a brother when I was a little kid, and then he left. And you'll, you've already mentioned why he left, but uh, let, me, let me read the first few paragraphs that take you back to a memory that I have carried all my life. And it was really the memory that, that lodged permanently that, that was the, my primary image of my big brother, Mike. So here's the beginning of the book. I am six. I tuck between the wooden studs in the garage, folding into a ball, my hands over my ears. Buckshot sprays of angry words fly at me through the open kitchen window. Summer heat fills the garage. I stare at the stipple of oil stains on the concrete floor and monitor the dust motes as they float from lightless corners through golden sun shafts. I jam myself deeper into the corners, aching to disappear, anything to distract from the incoming missiles packed with anguish words. In the kitchen of our little house in the Denver suburbs, my teenaged brother, Mike, towers over our mother, Isabel, his arms braced around her. He cages her against the wall. Mike is big, almost six feet tall at 14. He screams at our mother. You love Stevie more than me. You put me in school with retards. Everyone yells at me. Everyone tells me I messed up. Too much trouble. Stupid. Sick. He aims his rage especially at my father, Don, who is Mike's stepfather, for Mike is Isabel's son from her brief disaster of her first marriage. I hear you. I hear you and the stepdad talking. I hear you. 
You want to send me away. You hate me. I hate you. Mom does her best to speak calmly, to talk him down. I hide in the garage. Indeed, I hide from Mike's story for a very long time. I can reclaim only a few moments from my earliest years with my brother. I remember Mike's silly giggle and grin before his broken brain swept him away, his in-your-face enthusiasm, a giddiness with an edge, a little too ferocious, a little unsocialized, a little manic. That daunting summer afternoon in our Denver home in 1957 eclipsed any other joyful memories. A few days after Mike's searing confrontation with our mother, my parents at wit's end admitted him to Colorado Psychopathic Hospital for evaluation. Mike never spent a night at home again. So that, that was my childhood memory of Mike. He left, and he went into the Colorado State Hospital system for 10 years, diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia, capable of violence. And uh, that, that's where the story begins. That's, uh, I don't know, almost impossible to process as a six-year-old, right? What, what was your reaction? I guess you just set these memories aside and go forward. How do you handle that as a six-year-old? Oh, I think I buried it. I mean, that really that's really what happened. I, I didn't think a lot about Mike. I was just a little kid growing up. Um, you know, the power of that experience, I didn't really recognize the power of that experience until I worked on this book in the last few years, after long after Mike died, long after my parents died. Um, you know, D- Doug probably understands a lot more about what was going on in my brain over these years than I did, but... And, you know, as a psychologist, but um, my mother had saved a few fragments of records. She saved a few medical records. She saved some letters from Mike to her when he cut off contact with us. And she saved some newspaper clippings from his tragic and very public death. And they were tucked away in an envelope that we always called the Mike file. And I never wanted to deal with the Mike file until I had to deal with the Mike file. Mm-hmm. Well, let me turn to, to Douglas uh, Goldsmith. Um, it, I I don't know. I I can imagine this is fairly typical. It's uh, things that are just too tough to handle. We we don't handle, I guess, right? Well, it's, you know, this is is typical for our world today. And I think you know your question is a good one about what did you do with those feelings um, when we go back to the fifties. Child psychology barely existed. Um, there's really no communities and certainly none at that point in Salt Lake where a parent could have turned to a child psychologist, nor would they have, because it would have been filled with stigma. Um, we didn't have shelves of parenting books. We had parents had Dr. Spock advising them, and we weren't talking a lot about feelings. What we now know is that the kind of trauma that Steve experienced as a young child, <clears throat> and this is only for the past... Um, about 15 years that we've really focused in and said, this would have been a horribly traumatic experience, and there's now trained therapists available that would have been able to help him process that and um, make sense of it and make sense of the world. Now today we can help children do that. In the 50s and 60s, we could not have. Uh, so, Stephen uh, Tremble, you, uh, this must have been... I don't know. It's very, very hard to handle for your parents, right? Um, first of all, maybe tell us a little bit about Mike before uh, mental illness uh, set in. You, 
you um, you know, there's a gap eight years uh, between you, but you you have some memories. You, uh, for example, a record collection. Mike had had indexed his record collection. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Mike before uh, he left. Sure, uh, absolutely. So my my mother had a very brief marriage when she was 20. She grew up in Montana and followed this husband of hers to Denver and got a, got divorced immediately after Mike was born. Uh, turned out to be a, a mistake, as some of those early marriages are. And five years later, later, she married my dad, and I came along a couple years after that. And Mike was a sweet kid. Uh, he was... Um, Diagnosed as retarded as a kid. That was the word we used in those days. Slow to learn and struggling in regular school. My mother loved hard. She, you know, she loved her kids completely and she worked heroically with Mike every night tutoring him, getting him through those regular classrooms. Uh, you know, I have a memory of the two of them sitting at the yellow formica of our kitchen table and mom teaching Mike to read and teaching him basic arithmetic. Um, you know, he was a bit of a savant. He could remember birthdays, a uh, little bit of a, of a rain man feeling to that. But he was my big brother, and I loved him and worshipped him. And we would sit on the floor of the living room and play his little 45s on his portable record player that you mentioned. Uh, the one artifact I have of his childhood is still that binder of 45s, Elvis Presley and Bill Haley in the comments. comments and... Um, and then he began to get pretty unpredictable. You know, he got big, fast. He was headed toward six feet, even at 14. And my parents and I were all pretty small people. And I began to be leery of him. He was unpredictable. And when he was finishing up two years of special ed, he really became very difficult at school. They were they were scared of him at school. And that's when my parents began to cast around for help. And as Doug has already said, there was very little help. There were very few opportunities and alternatives. And that's that's really when I began to to shut down. Um, when Mike was in the Colorado State Hospital System, there were a couple of years there where he could come home for dinner. And I have a picture or two in the book of him visiting in the early 60s when I was 12 or 13. And then he was released back to Denver after 10 years when we started to mainstream all of our mental health patients out of institutions. And again, he came for dinner a few times when I was about 16. And uh, I remember him being fiery and emotional, and and those those difficult, challenging memories kind of wiped out the, the sweet ones from when he was a kid. Mm. Yeah, from those dinners, those later dinners, in fact, you have a section labeled uh, Chaos Comes to Dinner, and you say that Mike had, you know, his... Um a lot of energy, bro. A lot of energy, and uh, you know some positive qualities, but uh, also brought back chaos with him. That's right. Yeah, the, the last time he came to our home in the Denver suburbs for dinner, he came for Thanksgiving, and you know he had been away for ten years, and we had visited him a bit, but you know he was deeply resentful of having been banished from his family, and I didn't understand that. You know, my parents and I kind of thought, you know, Mike is back from the hospital, he'll kind of come back and sit down at his seat at the table and we'll be a family again. And it was far too stressful and difficult for him. And so um, the summer after he left the hospital and began living in halfway houses in Denver, 
he wrote my mother a series of letters that basically cut off contact with us. That I should let me read you the first of those letters. They're part of the Mike file, part of what my mother saved. I don't know how she managed to read them the first time, and I don't know how she had the courage to save them all those years. But um, he wrote he wrote a, a half a dozen letters over the course of a summer, and they just swing back and forth between just upset and apology and acrimony and, and love. So here's the first one, the excerpts from the first one. Thursday, June 1st, 1967, to Mom. Listen, I love you and all that, but still you should have realized what you did wrong to yourself and me. You made some of the worst mistakes that any mother should ever make. You took everything out of my life. Why don't you admit to yourself what you did wrong? Because you didn't get anything out of your life when you were a child. You wanted to take and mess your own son's life up entirely. Well, I'll tell you, did a darn good job of it. You don't want to ever, I don't want to ever hear from you or the stepdad. You better leave me alone entirely from now on out. I mean business. You think I am a fool. I'm a lot smarter than you put me on to be. You people are sick, selfish, and very unfair. I will send you people something for remembrance. I'd been better off in an orphanage after I was born because you sure didn't deserve me one bit. So leave me alone forever. I'm just sorry you deprived me of everything, because if I had good frame, peace of mind, I'd probably be in business for myself. Today you ruined me, but have a good summer anyway. Love, Mike. Those oscillating, you know, back and forth swings were just so difficult to read, from just these insistent, leave me alone forever cries, to apologies and best wishes. And he usually ended up saying something like, "Stay hello, say hello to Stevie for me too." He didn't. He didn't direct that that uh, frustration so much at me. Yeah, it's, it's a boy. Yeah, it had to be hard to take, especially for your for your mother. But yet she saved the letters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk? Uh, yep. uh, continue to talk about that. Let me turn back to uh, Douglas uh, Goldsmith. Um, let me just read this uh, in in preface. Uh, Stephen Trimble writes. Uh, then something big happened inside Mike's brain, something dark, angry, roiling. Talking about the manifestation of mental, mental illness here. Um, so uh, maybe contrast the 1950s versus today, what uh, obviously happened uh, with, with Mike then and what maybe would happen today with with the diagnosis or, you know, the family figures something's wrong and then what, what would happen? Well, it, it's... I'm sure many people are shocked to hear that letter, which is actually very eloquent and well-stated and filled with incredible pain. Um, You know, one of the time markings we need to think about is the divorce was not at all common in the early 60s. Um, We really had no idea what to do with that. It wasn't happening. In fact, it wasn't until the mid-70s when divorce really starts to skyrocket in our country. Um, most people um, in that time would remember that in elementary school, no kids were from a divorced families. So that already created a lot of stress and strain for him that the mental health system was not prepared to understand or manage. Just even the divorce part, which he really speaks about in incredibly painful terms. That letter today that you hear could be sitting on any school counselor or school psychologist desk in the country. 
with that same kind of rage and the same kind of pain and the same kind of, I'm not feeling understood. In fact, even in bigger ways, because the youth of today would be adding, I'm, I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to hurt myself. Um, we see so much rage and pain amongst the youth. And at the same time, <clears throat> we didn't even understand family therapy. So therapists would have been unable to say, let me see the parents and Mike together. We didn't understand diagnostics when Steve said he was um, a savant in today's world. He wouldn't be diagnosed with schizophrenia. He would have been diagnosed um, on an autism spectrum disorder, most likely. Um, so we've come a long ways in our understanding. We've come a long ways in our understanding how to talk about feelings and help people process them and a lot of new interventions that could have helped Mike. The tragedy is that it continues to really affect so many hundreds and thousands of families in our nation. Uh, Douglas Goldsmith, I wonder if you could talk about uh, institutionalizing um, uh, folks such as Mike. This was this was happening at, the, at that point. Uh, I'm sure we'd handle it or do handle it differently, obviously, today. Uh, that had to have a big effect on a lot of families. That was that was enormous, and you know, in the time that was our only option would have been a state hospital. Um, today, there's more options, but families with a child like Mike, who are so out of control, would say that there's very limited resources even today because. Uh, for many budget reasons and other political reasons, resources have been severely cut back. And it can be really painful and difficult for parents to find that. Even in our own community, um, if Mike had just come to the forefront of needing help, it can take three to six months to get him engaged in a child with a child psychologist or a child psychiatrist. Putting him on medication has been a game changer for kids like Mike. We could have had much better control and comfort and had him benefit from therapy. But the resources are still lacking, much like they were lacking in the 50s and early 60s. Hmm. Well, let's take uh, a break. We're uh, due for a break here. We'll come back uh, continue to tell uh, Mike's uh, story. We're uh, telling the story of Stephen Trimble's uh, brother, Mike. Uh, the book is The Mike File. It's a memoir. Uh, psychosis overwhelmed uh, Trimble's brother, Mike, uh, when he was 14. Uh, Stephen Trimble was six at that point, and uh, Mike was institutionalized at the Colorado State Hospital. Uh, he never lived at home again after that. And in the book, uh, Trimble takes readers along on Mike's heartbreaking journey, noting that Mike's life parallels the history of our treatment of the mentally ill over the last 70 years. Uh, we have with us uh, the writer Stephen Trimble. We also have uh, with us Douglas Goldsmith, who's longtime. Uh, Executive Director of the Children's Center is now in private practice. And uh, Stephen Trimble will be in conversation with Douglas Goldsmith uh, in a free virtual event on Crowdcast. That's happening on Wednesday, beginning at 6 p.m. It's presented by the King's English Bookshop, and it's free, uh, but you need to register. You can go to the King's English Bookshop, uh, go to their events page uh, to register for this free event on Wednesday. And we'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from listeners like you and the Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce, presenting the Cache Business Women's Conference at the Riverwoods Conference Center, October 20th from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. 
information about booth space and sponsorship opportunities at cashchamber.com. Hello, this is Jimmy Berman with the United Way of Cash Valley. Keeping a healthy lifestyle improves how we age, especially our brain function. Here's how you can help decrease your chances of developing dementia. Stay active, go for walks, attend aerobics classes, or work in your yard. Keep a healthy diet, eat lots of fruits and vegetables. As hard as it is, limit sweets and processed foods. Exercise your mind, read books, do crosswords, or try brushing your teeth with your other hand. It may seem silly, but it challenges your brain. And volunteer. Whatever you do, make it a regular part of your life. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Retired and Senior Volunteer Program of Cache and Rich Counties, bolstering social support and well-being of aging adults and family caregivers. Information at sunshineterrace.org slash RSVP. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, we're talking with uh, the writer Stephen Tremble. His new book is The Mike File. It's a memoir. And it's about his uh, older brother uh, who uh, was institutionalized at age 14 um, when uh, Stephen was six. And uh, it's about uh, Mike's heartbreaking journey uh, and uh, parallels the history of our treatment of mentally ill over the last 70 years. We also have with us Douglas Goldsmith. Uh, longtime executive director of the Children's Center in Salt Lake City. Uh, they'll be in conversation uh, in a free virtual event on Crowdcast presented by the King's English Bookshop. That's on Wednesday at 6 p.m. Uh, you must register to participate. You can do that at the King's English Bookshop website. So, Stephen Trimble, uh, you, you read that heartbreaking letter. Do you have other letters uh, in the book uh, from Mike, uh, you know, to your parents, to your mother? Um, and, and I, you, I'm sure you can understand at this point now being an adult and, uh, long years later that, uh, you know, some of that anger was justified. He, uh, from Mike's point of view, um, he, you know, totally uprooted, torn from his family and, uh, sent to this institution. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Tom. You know, what I'm really trying to do in the book is, is, uh, figure out who Mike was. What was his life like? You know, I, get, I get, really gave him very little thought most of my life. You know, he was he was just out there somewhere when he was alive. After he died, I had a, I had a one-liner, you know. I had a brother older than me, a half-brother, sequentially diagnosed as retarded, paranoid, schizophrenic, epileptic, who died years ago. That's all I really had to say. I always, I always uh, just kind of moved on and, and almost dismissed Mike as really a part of my life. But in this book, I really wanted to find out who was my mother at 20 when she gave birth to Mike? Who was Mike? What was his life like? And it was hard. It was really hard to recreate that life. I had so little to work with. You know, that envelope I've, I've talked about that my mother saved. And so I launched into the kind of research that I know how to do as a nonfiction writer and it was amazing what I did find. A lot of the, the medical records had been destroyed. You know, I couldn't find out what his therapist had to say, what his psychiatrist had to say. But I found school records. I found uh, lots and lots and lots of family history that I wrote into the book initially and then had to cut. Uh, we haven't mentioned how small the book is. It's a, 
a book in a series of books called the Little Bound Book Series that really distills the story right down to me and Mike and my parents. It's just 20,000 words. And I think compressing the story in the way that I finally did helped it a great deal. But um, it, it, it was a challenge to my research skills to find even what I could, looking in the archives of the Colorado State Hospital Museum, tracking down mental health leads in Denver, and talking to all of my psychologists and psychiatrist friends like Doug for, for insight, which helped immensely. I want to talk about, let me just read this line here. This is when Mike is released from the institution. He's in his 20s, I think, living in in Denver. And he comes, and he would come home periodically for, for dinner. Uh, so here's uh, quoting Stephen Trimble. I love my explosive brother. The love is in quotes. But I don't know how to be with him. I have no training, no instincts other than self-preservation. I have a hard time looking him in the eye. Mike is a stranger. Mike is strange. The, tell me a little bit about that, that uh, to trying to relate to your brother who hasn't been home for many years. And, uh, uh, you know, I guess he's a stranger to you at, at this point. Uh, and he's, he's got uh, mental illness. He's got, got some, some things. Mike is strange, you say. Tell me about trying to relate. You know, those were such brief encounters, Tom. I've thought back to each of them and tried to dredge up every scrap of memory I have. But, um, you know, picture picture my timeline. I was a little kid with Big Brother who was at home and was sweet. And then I was six years old when my brother turned into a volcano, and then he left. And my parents were, were quite protective. They didn't take me with them to visit Mike for a long time. And then occasionally, once every few months, I would go with them down to, to Pueblo, a two-hour drive from Denver. And sometimes Mike would be well enough to go to lunch with us, and sometimes we couldn't see him at all. And then all of a sudden, he's back. He's back in Denver. I'm 16. You know, what more difficult time in our lives is there than being 16? And all, the, all those years, I have been growing very, very tight with my parents. We're a little threesome. My dad worked for the U.S. Geological Survey, and every summer we'd go off to do field seasons uh, where he would map geology in some uh, quadrangle in Idaho or Oregon, and we'd rent a house in the nearby town and really depended on each other. And Mike, Mike could not break back into that little threesome, and that, that I think is one of the reasons he, he got so angry. And then he'd get angry and storm out, and he was big, and I was still relatively small, and I think that uh, it made perfect sense that I would be be scared. What what I didn't realize, and what I've come to realize in the course of working on the book, is that the person that I became, the person I am now, is in large part uh, incorporating a, a reaction to Mike. You know, I became the good the good guy, the good son, and always wanted to make sure I never upset my parents in the way that he did. And I, I didn't fully understand that. I still probably don't fully understand it, but I didn't understand it at all until I worked on the book. We'll turn back to uh, Douglas Goldsmith. Um, and have you talked to me about, um, maybe from the prism of today, and, and give some advice. Um, this is a big thing that happens to a family, right? A, a child um, becomes mentally ill. And uh, stresses and strains, trying to keep the family together, but uh, th that can be difficult. Uh, so what, what resources are there, and how do you do that? 
Um, you know, it, it's always incredible to me when Steve and I talk about this situation <clears throat> and in reading the book as well, um, that I think many of your listeners would be probably surprised to hear how many tens of thousands of people in our community are relating to this story as it's being read, are relating to, yes, we have a child in our home who is that explosive. Yes, we feel like we're walking on thin ice every time we come home. I'm seeing children in my private practice who would say those exact words. I'm frightened when my brother gets home from school. I'm frightened because of the divorce, whether my mom is losing her temper or dad is losing his temper. Um, I'm scared to go to different places. I'm seeking refuge with friends or at friends' houses. Um, it's hard for people to appreciate that. Many people are listening to this story, I'm sure, going, oh, my gosh, this sounds like our own home with the kind of pain that we're dealing with. And there are resources. There's certainly many more resources than we had in the 50s. But every single week, I get between five and ten people calling saying, please, can you help? I've called so many counselors, social workers, psychologists. No one's taking anybody right now. Everybody is overloaded trying to get somebody into one of the residential units in town can take um, several months of a waiting list. Uh, the schools have done a lot to step up and provide mental health care in our schools. Um, our legislature gave more money to have counselors in all the schools. But that doesn't fully address the need. The need is tremendous. And there's a lot of children and a lot of families in pain that are looking for help and struggling to find it in today's world. Uh, so this is a great place to maybe to enumerate some uh, some resources. What Where can families turn? Uh, depending on their community, families should be uh, they can call their insurance companies and find out panels because everyone's on panels now and see who is able to take their insurance and willing to take their insurance. Many therapists are no longer willing to accept um, insurance payments. Um, there's uh, in Salt Lake City and other areas right around Salt Lake, we do have psychiatric hospitals that are willing to do emergency visits, and that would have been an incredible access to Steve's parents to be able to get him seen. There is child psychiatry, and even though people are still afraid of medication, medication management would have probably been used in those times, and it kept him home. But he would have also, they would have also needed a lot of parenting work and family therapy to make it a peaceful home, and that can happen. So people need to reach out to their local mental health, um, uh, community mental health resources that are spread out throughout the state, um, talking to their pediatricians about where to get help, and talking to school counselors and school psychologists. Stephen Trimble, I wonder if you talk a little bit about your your mother and and her reaction to this. You you said and you read in the book, uh, she pours her whole heart and soul into her boys, right, and including Mike, uh, hours and hours at the kitchen table, trying to help Mike to get that D up to a C kind of a thing. Um, um, at a certain point, I don't know this, <laughs> this has got to become just just too painful. Uh, in fact, you you say she at a certain point she. She threw the mic fall away. That's right. Um, you know, we, we haven't talked about Mike's death, which I think was the very most difficult thing for my mom. 
uh, Mike came back to Denver, lived in these halfway houses. We didn't see him. Lived for almost another 10 years. And um, when he was 33, he was living in a halfway house and evidently died during an epileptic seizure and wasn't discovered for several days. And because we were not in touch, we got no notification of that. And the Denver media picked up on that as a a hook to expose poorly supervised state-supported halfway houses and boarding houses. And so one night in December of 1976, my cousin, my young, I had a cousin who would have been in her 20s then, was coming for dinner to my parents' house. I was off in grad school in Arizona. And as she walked into the, to the house, she picked up the evening newspaper, the Denver Post, and opened it up as she walked into the kitchen where my parents were going to make dinner for her. And on the front page, there was a headline that said, Death came knocking and only Mike was listening. And that's how my mother found out about the death of her son from the front page of the Denver Post. There was a series of articles exposing these poorly supervised boarding houses, and Mike's death was the hook. And the Denver TV stations went into the room where he had died and ran that footage on the evening news. You know, I can't, I can't even imagine how impossibly difficult that was for my mother, who was already dealing with the guilt of having sent her son away and who had family members who were very accusatory and unforgiving of her decision to do that, who didn't understand her decision. And so uh, she, she disappeared into depression for a while. She came back, and thank God she came back. But what, I mean, what an impossibly difficult end point of Mike's life for my mom. You know, she, she, she often thought of herself as weak, but she was actually incredibly strong just to, to get through that. No wonder she tried to throw away the mic file a few times. She would peri- periodically just reach a point of, I, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want this in my life. And my dad retrieved that envelope of records, and it just was, it was going to survive. It, it needed to survive long enough for me to open it up. Yeah, that's just incredible. Douglas Coldsmith, I wonder if you talk about the point of view of the parents. Um, you know, you start with stress, and I, you escalate from there. Guilt involved, I'm sure. You know, trying to do do sufficient, trying to do enough, probably feeling like you're failing a lot of the time. I think those are all feelings that so many of your listeners, I'm sure, are relating to. Um, <clears throat> it feels even more helpless when we have very young children that have extreme mental health issues like Mike did, because we feel as parents like, then is this a parenting failure? Um, Is this something I should have been able to handle? Did we make a mistake? Was it the divorce that caused this? Um, And we actually know that it was not the divorce that caused the trouble. We know that um, with 50% of marriages ending now in divorce, 60% of second marriages, that about 90% of those actually go on to do quite well. It's about 10% where we really see struggling and high conflict. But we also know about Mike that because of our increased understanding um, about psychiatric issues in young children, that this was not the fault of the parents. Um, And we can say that with really quite certainty. He was he really had serious mental health issues. 
Um, and we have to work a lot with parents to help them understand that and not to take a lot of blame. But the blame of, should I have put him in the system? Would that have been better to keep him at home? I would imagine this was extraordinarily painful for his parents to try to reckon with for a very, very long time. And a lot of part of what we were hearing at that time was a stigma, stigma of mental health. It wasn't something that they would have talked to about with friends and family. It would have been something that would have been very embarrassing, and that's why a lot of kids were shuttled off and not seen again because it was just a humiliating event, and we didn't know what else to do. Let's take another break. Yeah, I, yes, go ahead, Stephen, before we go to break. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I did, I did my best to interview my family friend for, for the book. You know, There were a few survivors of my parents' generation, and they corroborated, corroborated exactly what Doug said. You know, my, one of my mother's best friends said, you know, your mom just didn't talk much about Mike. And one of my dad's best friends said the same thing. Um, you know, they, it, it's, in some ways it wasn't so much shame as guilt and just the con- incredible discomfort of talking about something like Mike's mental illness and his disappearance. Um, it, w- it was a very different world, really was. Mm. Uh, let's let's take a break. Um, Stephen Trimble, I'll, I'll alert you. Um, I, I'd love to have you read the first few paragraphs from uh, Chapter 5 when we come back. Um, uh, so uh, let's, uh, let's do take a break next. Uh, let me mention that we're talking with Stephen Trimble, we're talking about his new book, The Mike File. It's about his brother, Mike, uh, who was institutionalized when he was 14. Stephen was 6, never lived at home again. And we're talking about mental illness, especially in children. Uh, we're talking as well with Douglas Goldsmith, who's the longtime executive director of the Children's Center in Salt Lake City. Uh, they're uh, going to be in conversation in a free virtual event on Crowdcast presented by the King's English Bookshop. That is on Wednesday, beginning at 6. You need to register to participate. It's free. Uh, you can register by going to the King's English Bookshop website. More following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Lucky Slice Pizza. Handcrafted New York-style pizza, available by the slice and whole pie, seven days a week for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery. Located in Ogden, Clearfield, and Logan. Information at theluckyslice.com. The last U.S. troop has left Afghanistan. Last night in Kabul, the United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan. But it's not over everywhere. I've been to front lines. I know what it means to be afraid of, like, being shot at. And in places like Yemen, the threat comes from the skies. This is a whole different level of fear that is constant. On the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting in Spanish on a new channel. You can hear a variety of music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue on UPR. You can hear it 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR 3 button. Utah Public Radio está transmitiendo en español en un nuevo canal. Puede escuchar una variedad de programas musicales y de charlas en español de Radio Bilingue en UPR. Puede escucharlo las 24 horas del día en upr.org. Simplemente haga clic en Escuchar en Vivo y luego presione el botón UPR 3. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with writer Stephen Trimble. His new book is The Mike File. It's a memoir. Uh, he, he talks in the book about his brother Mike, who uh, at age 14 was uh, institutionalized in the Colorado State Hospital 
never lived at home again. And in that book, Trimble uh, takes us along uh, on Mike's heartbreaking journey, noting that Mike's life paralyzed his, parallels rather the history of our treatment of the mentally ill over the last 70 years. We're also talking with Douglas Goldsmith, longtime executive director of the Children's Center in Salt Lake City. Uh, they'll be in conversation in a free virtual event on Crowdcast presented by the King's English Bookshop. That's happening Wednesday at 6 p.m., uh, free, uh, open to you. Uh, you must register to participate, and you can do that uh, on the King's English Bookshop website and later today on our website uh, as well. So, Stephen Trimble, I wanted to have you read uh, the uh, the first bit of Chapter 5, the, the, the excerpt from Mike's letter, A Home, and, and then the first three paragraphs, if you would. Okay. Um, let me go ahead and do that. So I start each chapter with a, an excerpt from one of Mike's letters. And this one is, I am a person with great determination, power, desire, initiative, and confidence in myself. I am getting by in this big, deep, revolving world. That was from one of Mike's letters to my mother in 1967. Here's the beginning of the chapter. You step from your car, distracted, headed for an appointment. A homeless man approaches, bearded, unkempt, wild-eyed. You know you should be empathetic, but he comes too close. No sense of boundaries, no filters, jumpy in his movements. You pull back, you stiffen, on alert, expecting a request for a handout or a disorganized rant about lurking CIA operatives. You feel guilty, but you don't want to get drawn into messiness. You nod, you smile tightly, you look away, you move on. Mike may have had some of this look of the other, even if I remember him cleaner, better dressed, and better groomed than most of the people we see walking on downtown sidewalks, conversing in erratic outbursts with unknown listeners. Most of us turn away from these people in need, no matter how forlorn they seem. We don't want to get involved. Thank you for reading that. It's beautiful. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, to, both of you, starting with Stephen Trimble, uh, to talk about how, so for you specifically, how you saw, and, and maybe now how you see your brother, your brother Mike. Um, I think sometimes we tend to see uh, the mentally ill through, uh, principally through the prism of their mental illness. Uh, harder to see them as a as a person. Of course, this uh, Mike was your brother, but there was some distance there, the age gap, and he was gone for a long time and uh, put it away for a while. But then the whole this whole project, the Mike file, is you reclaiming your brother. So uh, how did you see him then, and how do you see him now? Well, we talked a little bit about how I saw him then um, as a scary guy out at the outer fringes of my life. And I see him very differently now after doing the work, the really good work of, of working on this book project. Uh, I, I, I think I managed now to see him as a person, and I can hear his voice when I read those letters. Um, I actually have a little tiny snippet of his voice. My parents used to exchange recordings with my grandparents, with my dad's parents, every week. And we'd all sit around the wire recorder back in the 50s, wire recorders being the predecessors of tape recorders, and record our little stories from the week. And my parents saved a few of those. And I have one little snippet of Mike basically talking about going to the dentist, uh, probably when he was, you know, 12 years old. So I, I see him, I hear him, and I can see him as a, a, a young man just struggling through life, uh, 
those newspaper stories about him when he died had a few lines about who he was. And the manager of that boarding house said that he was a worrier, that he was always worried about one thing or another. It's hard to say whether that was actually a way of talking about his mental health or not, his mental illness. But he, you know, there was also mention of him having friends. And there was a description of Wild West novels on his his dresser in his bedroom. And so I have these little tiny snippets of, of who he was that helped me to build build him back and reclaim him. Um, you know, the the subtitle of the book is a story is is a story of grief and hope. And I, I want our listeners to know that there is some hope here, as well as all this grief. Um, and I think that the way I think of that hope is simply that I do see Mike. I am standing up in public and saying, I see you, which I think is what d- does actually create hope, that we recognize the people in our lives rather than hide them, that we say, yes, indeed, we love those folks. They are our brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents and children. And as a community, if we recognize them, that is the first step toward hope. And after that, we need massive reform in the way we deal with, with mental health. Uh, Douglas Goldsmith, I wonder if you talk about this as well. Um, how do we, I think sometimes, often, in fact, we compartmentalize the, the mentally ill. Um, how, do, how, do we, how do we see them as people? That, that can be difficult sometimes. I, I think that that is difficult for so many. And, you know, we here in the country, certainly as we're working through COVID, about how many people are now homeless, how many people are on the streets in our cities and struggling. And sometimes people turn their eyes away from them because they're afraid that they're violent. And unfortunately, this is a very oftentimes mentally ill population that are struggling to get help and trying to receive help and services that are shorthanded. Um, and I, but I think also, you know, in this beautifully written section of the book talks about the pain of having family members that are mentally ill, the pain on both sides, the pain from Mike of having lost his family and being raised by people he didn't know, the pain for Steve of where did my brother go, the pain for his parents of where did our child go and was this the right thing to do, Um, all of those are issues that so many families are struggling with and need help with, and help is available. Uh, Stephen Trimble, you mentioned reforms. uh, Are are there some you might enumerate uh, that that are needed? Yeah, and and I could certainly do an even better job of that. Um, I I actually chose to end the book imagining those reforms, imagining a better life for Mike. And it's pretty clear that we know what those are. You know, it, it really is remarkable how Mike's life did parallel the big events in the way we deal with, with mental illness. You know, he went to the state hospital just at the moment when they quit doing lobotomies and hydrotherapy and all those horrible, horrific things. And he was there when we tried to reform the state hospitals, and he was there when we emptied out the state hospitals. And the, the Colorado State Hospital went from 6,000 people to 500 people. And he was back in, in Denver living in those halfway houses just before everyone ended up turning into homeless people on the streets. Not everyone, but so many mentally ill people. So we 
tried a community health care system under President Kennedy. Uh, President Kennedy had this vision of doing things right based largely on having a sister who had struggled with mental illness. And then we quit funding them. And then they were seriously underfunded, underfunded after the Reagan administration came in. And we have yet to come back from that. You know, we need teams of people supporting people who struggle with mental health, therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and social workers and community volunteers. We need group homes where they can live successfully and be monitored. We need beds that they that folks can go to when they have a, a descent into psychosis and then go back home to the group home if they can't live on their own or if they can't live with families. Uh, most of our drugs are are still pretty much direct descendants of the drugs discovered in the 50s. We haven't figured out enough about brain chemistry to do better. Uh, you know, there's an enormous amount of research about the way our brains work, and uh, that that does give me, give me some hope as well as we make bigger and bigger strides along those lines. But I'll turn that question back to Doug as well. Yes, Doug the Goldsmith, uh, and it re- reforms uh, maybe t- top of your mind that, that would be very effective. Well, I think the the reforms are critical. Now, sometimes when we start screaming reform is when there's been a a community shooting. And I think it's really important to understand that uh, those are not the mentally ill. If the mentally ill were doing the mass killings, we would see a much higher rate. But what we do need are continued reforms. We need continued help in the schools. I think people would be surprised to see how many troubled kids are showing up every day in our schools. We need even more money and more help to be assisting the teachers and the children. And the earlier that we start, the better. We obviously need huge economic reforms to be taking care of all the homeless and providing, which is starting to happen, even many homes where they can start to feel a sense of being a person again. Um, There are so many things that we can be doing in our communities, but I would also always argue the earlier we start, the more successful we are. Stephen Trimble, uh, give you the the last word, uh, just a minute here at the end. Um, uh, As we leave the program, what would you like us to remember about your brother Mike? Uh, Well, I'd like like to remember, I'd like you all to remember both about my brother Mike and about me. Uh, Let me see if I can squeeze in a couple more paragraphs from toward the end of the book. Um, If we only have a minute, I can't read this whole section, but I'll do some excerpting. I'm grateful to mostly have avoided the calamities of mental health issues that run in my family, the hazards that run in our genes. I'm grateful my children have as well. I didn't escape unscathed. I've opened the mic file. I've held the letters and the stories and the grief in my hands. I felt tender. I felt vulnerable. I felt fear about what I'd find. And I realized that I define myself in part as not Mike. I supposed I was a simple, stable person by nature, and maybe that's true. But when I saw how hard Mike was in our family, I surely chose to be the opposite. Uh, let me bounce forward a little bit here. Since I know we're getting toward the end. I'm shocked that self-realization takes so long, but now I no longer think of myself as mostly an only child. Mike was there, too, all along. 
shaping our family, shaping me, and his disappearance from our family was a grievous loss. I was deprived of a relationship with my brother, and that was a subtraction from what would have been a richer life for both of us. I've come in from the garage where it turns out I've been hiding for more than 60 years. I've rejoined my family, even if many of them are gone. I've waited until I felt safe before I could own the mental illness that flares in her lineage through multiple generations. Finally, I can risk turning to each of these characters in my life with more understanding than I've ever before brought or sought. As these people from my life drift away into memory, I don't want to lose them. My fragile raconteur of a mother, my kind, fierce scientist father, my storm cloud of a brother. Generation to generation, we tumble along in a maze of family emotion and energy. The network of trails connecting these characters expands as elders die and new rounds of children appear and grow up in all of their challenging and endearing humanity. In her essay, The Empathy Exams, Leslie Jameson concludes that empathy is a choice, a choice we make to pay attention to extend ourselves. I arrived late, but I've made my choice. Beautiful. Uh, Stephen Trimble reading from his new book, The Mike File, and that's out and available now, and we've been talking with Stephen Trimble on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us, Tom. It's a pleasure. Pleasure for me as well. And we've also been talking with Douglas Goldsmith, the former executive director of the Children's Center in Salt Lake City. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Should mention they'll be in conversation in a virtual event. You can go to the King's English Bookshop to register for that event. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and UPR.org.